this morning, I'd like to take time to show you something of how the apostolic mind works. Now, over the years, I tried to observe, and I think maybe that's part of what that apostolic gift is. But I noticed that it was operating before I had that particular calling, so maybe that's not to be exactly said, except that I think that it was there because what was later to be manifested. The majority of all people who read the Word do not have any concept of what apostolic doctrine would be. It said the early disciples continued in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. Question, what is apostolic doctrine? Well, over the years we've developed things like the Apostles' Creed, and with these points are the Apostles' Doctrine. I do not think that is what it's referring to at all. Uh, there would be certainly some things, some theological points. Now, theology, the word ology, whenever you see it, means a study of. So we're talking about a study of theos or a study of God or a study of things about God. So when we talk about theology, we really are speaking about, in its basic form, a study of things about God. So theology really could be anything that we would ever say to you based on the revelation of the Word of God to us. So in one sense, in the right sense, theology is a right study. And we ought to study it. We ought to give ourselves to it carefully to understand what the Bible teaches. Because, now hear this carefully. Most people do not really know what the Bible teaches. I'm speaking about Christians. I'm not talking about sinners here now. Of course they don't. And they never could, even though they would give the same amount of study as the most studious Christian could give. They would not know what the Bible taught. But even if you give much study to the Bible, there is a way that the apostolic mind looks at things that the majority of people do not look at the Bible. And I think, again, here we're talking about a gift operating as opposed to just a good mind or studious practices or a person that learned to reason logically. There's a different way of looking at the Bible. And it's something that I call it's a broad aspect of the Bible, like oversight. The apostolic mind is not content to get a subject and say, here's the subject. I'm going to teach you on this subject. Many times a teacher will pick a subject and categorize it like that, and he will teach on that. Or an apostle could teach on a subject. But he will not be content to think about that subject unless he can think about it in terms of a very broad perspective of the whole Word of God. And I'm saying the average person doesn't do that. They think of something say, where is that? And they look it up and say, oh, I got that now. In other words, they do not apply the time, and there's, in most people, just simply not, just not there to force themselves to look at the broadest possible aspect of what the book is saying. See, they say, well, the verse says this, or the chapter says this, or the subject is this. But that's just about the limits. Most people stop with the verse says this. In other words, they get a verse, say, well, here's a verse. See, and most people are verse conscious. They're very verse conscious. Though I've told you many times, I don't know how many of you have heard it, but I've said it many times, the Bible originally was not written in chapters and verses. There are no chapters and verses in the original letters. So we must train ourselves not to be verse conscious or chapter conscious. Many times those chapter divisions... If you're reading it carefully, that chapter stops you right at the point and you stop reading it. Automatically, say, I read chapter 27. And we stop. But it goes right into chapter 28. Say, therefore, my beloved brother, we... And we miss that whole point. See? And then we read, we start with, therefore, my beloved brother. But we don't go back and say, therefore. What do you mean, therefore? There must have been something before this he's talking about, therefore. Sometimes in certain books of the Bible I've seen this, that Paul will pick up at a point and say, therefore, and you have to go back three chapters, two chapters, one chapter, to pick up the therefore. He put, 
a whole other subject matter right in the middle of it, and we often do that in conversation. I'm talking along something, and then I get off in this thing here, and therefore, back to here. Now, if you're reading chapter by chapter, verse by verse, in other words, you've got that locked-in little mentality. All right, now, many times you can't help that, because that's sometimes where we are. That's why apostolic doctrine is so important, especially in matters of controversy. Now, most of us are safe enough in general things, because we've heard the overall theology, but I'm telling you, most people reason from the verse, and sometimes the chapter, and that's sometimes the subject, but that's about the limit backward. The apostolic mind, by the virtue of God, forces him to look at the whole thing and say, how does it all fit together? Right. Now, I want to put down just as a word here, verse conscious. It is a no-no. Right. Why is it a no-no? That's right, because in the originals there are no verses, no chapters. Those are put in there only as conveniences. Now, you know what I mean by a convenience. It has no spiritual meaning. It is a convenience. And the only purpose of the convenience is so that I may be able to open this book up and say, open to the book of Genesis 4, chapter 17, verse, and you can quickly locate the exact point that I'm reading at, but it's not like I read the 17th verse and now suddenly that by itself gives us a total revelation of the mind and thought of God on that particular idea. A second thing that the normal person does is assume that they can read and arrive at truth for themselves in the same manner an apostle can. In other words, they make no distinction, though the Bible is very clear to make distinctions in the early church. Very clear to make these distinctions. They followed the apostles' doctrine. They didn't say, read the Bible for yourself. Now see, Paul, and I want you to remember this, Paul said, I have said nothing except what the Father said. In other words, he said, I take this right out of the writings. See, the old New Testament didn't exist, right? You understand that? There was no New Testament. Well, you want to sit down, okay, here's the New Testament, read it for yourself. You've got to understand why there's something no called apostolic doctrine. Because there's a kind of mentality that exists that zeroes in on truth and says, God, reveal truth to me. I've got to be able to give this to the people. They've got to, see, and you've got to learn then how to receive truth. See, now, what every man has is the ability to hear something handed down and look and see if it's in the Bible. See, no man needs to get a snow job and gets washed away with something because somebody tells him, I'm going to give this big thing here. No, you are quite able to understand truth in some form. Now, not completely. Now, let me point this out again. Now, I'm going to make some points here that need to be understood. That Peter himself, speaking about the Apostle Paul, his brother and co-worker, two apostles, right, said, according to the wisdom given to our brother Paul. For he has written some things hard to be understood, which the unstable rest for their own destruction. Or now, I want you to see that not all the apostles had equal understanding of the Word of God. But once understood, a person could say, that is not in the Word of God. So therefore, the Bible commended certain people in the New Testament. When Paul taught apostolic doctrine, he certainly did, the Bible says the noble Bereans, these Bereans were more noble than they of Thessalonica. What did they do, these Bereans? They searched the Scriptures whether these things Paul said were so. In other words, they said, okay, Paul, I hear what you said. In other words, you've laid down a... Now I will search the Scripture to see whether this is so. Now, every man has that protection built into him. Every woman has that protection built into her, that she has the Spirit of God... That's why the Bible says you have an anointing from God and have no need that anyone teach you. Now, that doesn't mean... See, now, here again, and I've had people come to me and say, Oh, man, get rid of the preachers. We don't need them. The Bible says we have an anointing from God and don't have any need that anyone should teach us. Now, there is the typical mentality that you run into in the church. Verse conscious picks one verse out. The obvious question you should have asked yourself if you have no need, if that meant absolutely no need for teachers, no need for preachers, no need for apostles, no need for... Then what should have been the obvious question that would immediately, to one who had a broader oversight of the word, what's an obvious question? Well, of course, why did God put teachers in the church if you don't need teachers? See? 
But a person, they feel so very, like, this, right there, don't you see that? We have no need, and that's the Word of God. No need that anyone teach you. It's there in the Word, don't you see it? Say, yes, I do see it. Right. But your conclusion about what that said is wrong. See? That person, oh man, you're the devil, see? And then they go away with their own ideas. And pay. Now, thank God this group has said, we listen to apostolic doctrine. Tell us what this book says. Now, your protection is, if I get off the wall, you're able to open the book and say, Jim, it doesn't say that, brother. See, there's the protection now. So no one needs to get into a Jim Jones thing. The reason why those people did, they weren't Christians in the first place. But I say certain Christian groups have been let off because they gave up their protection. The protection is to open the book and say, it doesn't say that, though. You quoted that scripture wrong. You said that scripture said this one didn't say that at all. Or how about this scripture over here? Now, there's the balance of these two things. So if an apostle twists off, or someone who claims he's an apostle, in fact, is not an apostle, starts twisting off in some weird area, the people are quite able to protect themselves and remain in their integrity before God. Very important to understand those basic differences. Now, second thing. All of the apostles at any one time did not have the understanding of the other apostles. Partly, it depended on where they were in their development at that particular time. Now, this is an important thing. Some time ago, I was speaking on a certain subject. As a matter of fact, it's happened to me several times, and I've made this statement. Some brother has said, well, do the other apostles agree with this? In some areas, I would say some of the other apostles that I recognize as possible would not agree with me in something that I'm seeing or feeling or believing. But it is not right to judge me on that basis and say, therefore, we won't do it because we heard from this other person that we believe to be a great teacher, a great preacher, and we believe like that. Paul made a very clear example of the danger of saying, we're of Apollos, we're of Cephas, we're of this, we're of this, or in other words, I accept this position with this, and I accept your position on this, but I accept his position on this, and I accept this position on this. The next thing, what that does is divides us completely so that a whole ministry does not have a unique message. In fact, it ends up having no message because it's a confused message. So when a person goes one place, he hears one thing, he goes another place, he hears another thing, he goes another place, he hears another thing, and he gets the idea that nobody really has anything much to say. It's all just a mass of confusion, and nobody really is with it. See? Right, now, it's very important to understand the nature of apostolic doctrine and what its purpose is. Now, let me explain... What I'm saying, all the apostles did not have a common understanding. In the New Testament, book of Acts, Paul, Barnabas, and Peter are together. They are in the house of a Gentile. Now, Peter, evidently, by this time, has come to at least comfortable enough, though he was not maybe ever really completely comfortable with it, maybe he was. They are in the house of a Gentile and probably eating somewhat non-kosher food and maybe totally non-kosher food. I don't know here, but it's probably not strictly Jewish food. And certainly it wasn't in an atmosphere where it would be kosher food. You know, so it couldn't have been kosher. It's an unclean place from the point of view of the Jewish mind. But Peter had come to the place, maybe from Paul's teaching, maybe from his experience in Cornelius' household, although it doesn't say he ate anything there himself. That he simply went up and delivered the word of God, which he didn't even want to do that, but he had to do it because God showed him that he ought to do that, not to call men common or unclean, whom God has cleansed. So he delivered that. Later on, we find him actually sitting down, and he is, in fact, as a matter of fact, someone told me, Simon the Tanner, that tanning was an unclean occupation, and that for Peter to even be in the house of Simon the Tanner was a great step forward in his development to be an apostle to a greater and greater number of people. So you can't understand the restrictions that were upon the Jewish people that had come. Some from the Word of God, others not, but they had very careful restrictions built, who they could be with, what they could touch, what they could eat, what they could do, so forth and so on. Now, Peter now has come to the place where he and Barnabas, also a Jew, are sitting down with Paul in a Gentile place eating food. And they hear that a party of men are coming from James, from Jerusalem. And when they hear this, Peter jumps up quickly, runs out of the place where he is, and acts like he just got there, he's standing looking at scenery or something. 
Barnabas also runs out with him, and he also stands there. Paul comes out and rebukes them both in front of the whole group. And he said, I withstood them to the face because they were to be blamed. He said, Peter went out and did this thing, and Barnabas dissembled. dissembled. In other words, acted deceitfully. See? Because here's what they really were doing, and they rushed over and acted like this. Why, why did Peter act this way? James was a very rigid, kosher man yet. And he maintained, though he fully was into knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, and he had walked with Jesus, he was filled with the Spirit, but he kept the Jewish things. Now, they were not, in his mind, you didn't sit down, you preached maybe to him, he accepted that when Peter came back and said, who was I that would stand God? And they said, well, then God has given life to the Gentiles also. But when that party came up from Jerusalem, he jumped up out of there because he did not want to run afoul of James who said, why have you done this? This is going to get back, and you're going to lose your testimony with these people. See? All right, now here he's torn between two things. He knows he can do this. He's now got to that place. But the pressure of James coming, now you say, well, you're fear of man. See, he was torn between two things. Instead of being able to stand up and say, in this place I know I could do it, yet if I'm among the Jews, I would not think of doing a thing like that. I would walk properly among them. See, as Paul did. Now, Paul eats Gentile food. Even things sacrificed to idols, he says he can eat that. That's no problem to him. Yet when he comes back to Jerusalem, he does what? He takes a vow and purifies himself and goes into the temple. Now notice the broad understanding he had. So he said, I am to men under the law. I am this way. I am to those without this way. See? Broader understanding than those apostles in Jerusalem had. And that's why God used them in that tremendously broad way to explain things that they couldn't explain. That's why Peter said, our brother Paul has written things hard to be understood. Hard to be understood. Why? I can read them and understand them because I don't have that background. But they were locked into that background. And now they're reading these things and it's like, oh, how do we get this background off of us? All right, now... Every one of us come from a background with certain penchants. We like to do this. We don't like to do this. I was making a remark the other day that over the years in this matter of mixed bathing, now you're trying to explain some things here and do it in such a way that I will still retain my head after this meeting is over. In the matter of mixed bathing, now I went to the Assembly of God Church in my early days in which we, in the Redwood District, now the Redwood District is where I was saved, and that's Eureka, California, and it goes on up to Crescent City and down to uh, Garberville, is as far south as it goes. Swimming at public pools, open beaches, not private pools. They believed that if it was a strictly private pool with a very high fence and a roof over the top, you could go swimming with your wife. Now, I'm not going to downgrade, because I'm going to tell you, you're going to hear some things from me before we get out of here, I think, on the this sex situation that you need to hear. You see, you come from a background that you have a very low, of course, you've grown much in that time, but I mean, your background is a very light attitude toward sex. So what? Let's do it. See, I mean, it's kind of, and I see, like, bumper stickers and here and there. If it feels good, do it. Huh. That's not what the Bible says at all. Uh, not what the Bible says at all. Yeah. But in the matter of mixed bathing, I've noticed this. We in the Redwood District had very strong standards against mixed bathing. But in Southern California, they had very liberal standards about mixed bathing. Same church. Now, can you tell me why? That's right, it's hot in Southern California. You got a lot of beaches down there. That's why we don't have any beaches, so we preach very powerfully against it. Now, it's also very interesting that in Redwood District, we preach very powerfully against anybody participating in the growing of wine grapes, that anyone who would do a thing like that was surely of the devil. And down in grape country, they felt it's God who's given us grapes. And therefore, as long as we do not partake, but others, whatever they do with the grapes is their business. So, see, now, same church, right? Wholly different 
approach. Now, the reason why? No apostolic reason. Now, the way we normally reason is from two points of view. Now, you weigh this into your hopper and bring it up time and again. The way we normally reason is not to reason at all. We start out with a point of believing something first. I believe it's all right to go mixed bathing or swimming because my mother and my father or my or I don't feel anything bad about it or I don't have so we start out saying it's all right therefore I am going to look in the Bible and prove it you can always prove it second point which is not reasoning again see it has nothing to do with reasoning simply because you eliminate everything contrary to say in other words you put that argument down oh ridiculous and you only take the arguments that fit where you are basically second point is I reason from pressure these people are set to do this and if I say no they will kill me therefore praise God there it is I see it we can do it that's right that's almost all reason all human reason in moral issues is based on these two things so you find the church in times of depression preaching praise God for God's poor God honors the poor person God loves the poor person it's an honor and a thing of beauty to be poor and the rich of this world God will bring them down and God will destroy them but you my poor friends you see and we're saying oh yeah right on praise God preach it man those rich you them kill them see now times of affluence God wants you to live like the king's kids and show this world how king's kids live. Get that gold-plated Cadillac. Buy that $300,000 house. Show them how. See, the people say, Amen, brother, preach it. <laughs> but in none of these cases has it got anything to do with what the Word of God says. Except we become verse conscious. Say, Abraham could buy and sell kingdoms. Oh, wow, we're going to buy and sell the United States here pretty quick. See, that's the whole mentality. It has nothing to do, and I say once again, see, I make it a little humorous, but I want to get so humorous you think it's a joke. It's an extremely dangerous human trait. I don't want to put these two things down. We reason, the only word I can use, but it's not reasoning. It is logicalizing. That's like the dirt and dance step I just thought the word of. In other words, all right, now it is logic. A person calls it reasoning from these points of view, a basic bent or belief or desire, which is bent, or pressure of circumstance. If I say this, then this is what will happen to me. Therefore, praise God, I see the truth. This is what I can say. Okay. Now, over the years, I have run into certain interesting beliefs. Those interesting beliefs would be such things always based on an impartial understanding of the Word of God, now, we're not going to get into the area here where a person deliberately perverts the Word of God. That kind of person is another thing to be dealt with. Among us, we honor the Bible. We would not pervert the Word of God, although many times I do want to put on one other point here which causes us to, but it's a different kind of thing. And most people believe they read well, even if they, in fact, don't read so well, but they believe I'm perfectly capable of understanding what I read. Now, let me tell you two things militating against that. One, if you don't understand the larger, you cannot understand the lesser with certainty. See, it may be what's said is all that has to be said on that subject. In other words, that one little point is very clear, and wherever else you read, it's exactly the same. But in most cases in the Bible, it's a little here, a little there, a little here, a little there. Unless you see all of that and then see that in the context of the whole framework of God's mentality toward things. See, one of the things we were discussing, and I'll bring this up if we get a chance to deal with on the Christmas issue, is that God reasons differently about 
forgiveness than we do. Or that he overlooks things. See, we tend to say, oh, well, you know, what is that today? But God has a different way of thinking about some things. And we'll get into that as we move along. But the second thing that militates against reading well is that many times when we read, we read what is already in our head. Now, you need to look at this carefully. Because many people have read scriptures for years, quoted it, preached it. For instance, many, many people reading the New Testament many times will say that God said, go first to Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. He never said that at all. He never said, I pointed this out to preachers who are studious, careful scholars. They know the Greek and the Hebrew. They are pinpointers. They can take the Greek and pull it apart and tell you all the nuances and the special meanings of this word and how it's applied here and all the things that go with it. And then quote that scripture, First Jerusalem. I said, but it doesn't say that. Oh, but it does, brother. And this word means this, me, and this, me. Both. One and the same time. And they've looked at it and said, well, I never saw that before. Now, why didn't they see it before? See, they're studious. They've got good minds. They're excellent readers. They know the Greek and the Hebrew. They've got a mind to analyze and pull out. They never saw it because it didn't fit their logicalizing pattern. See, the normal pattern of the human is to say, first here, then here, then here. Right? Isn't that logical? We've all been taught to do that, right? Now, when that's a deep belief in my mind, I read into the verse... And the word can change right while I'm reading it. So in fact, I'm looking right at it, but I read it. You shall be witnesses to me both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I read you shall be witnesses to me first Jerusalem, Judea, then Samaria, then. And all the words are supplied to my logicalizing mind. And from then on, here, whenever I read that verse, the mind projects onto the page what fits my logical pattern. Does it every time, David. And a person, sometimes we're astounded. Back in Eureka, I'm thinking of cases in point, where we were dealing with a subject, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And I spoke on this subject, I believe it's a five-fold ministry. I said, it's no big deal with me, whether it's five or four, as long as they're all there, because what it's really saying is we need more than ourselves to maintain or round off or mature the saints. But these brothers were very insistent on four. And they were insistent because they said, Pastor, teacher. See, was one particular thing. And they said, therefore, the pastor, teacher, was one. Well, I said, let me ask you a question. I said, the Bible speaks about, over in another place, using exactly the same sentence structure, naming two things. It's two there, not one. Why do you think this is this and this is this? They said, oh, well, the whole sentence structure is completely different. I said, no, it is not. So they went and read it. Then this brother pulled out his Greek Bible. He said, no, they're both exactly the same. He said, I don't know why I think that way now. See? Now, here's an interesting thing. That with all of the analysis, they read it one way in one place and with a different way in a different So it was exactly the same in both cases. Now, why did they read it with all of that understanding and studious mind? Because it was already in the heart what he believed. Therefore, whenever he read it, he just simply read that right out of it. Now, not deliberately. Don't get the idea I'm saying they sit around trying to work the scripture. The mind simply doesn't register it. It just, it's not there. Okay. How many of you understand that point up to now? Now, let me ask another question. How many have read something many times and then later on went back and read another time and suddenly it came to light what it really said? Oh, I've been reading it wrong all the... Ever had that experience? Let me see your hand if you have. Well, you know, see? Now, see, if you can be aware of that danger, that if you strongly believe something, then two things you will be protected from. The two fallacies now we fall into is one, looking for then, for... Now, the word here is looking 
for. We now go out and search for it. Because the Holy Spirit is almost like leaving us a little bit restless about it sometimes. Where we're not certain, we're absolutely certain. We're like, I know what that book teaches, I draw you and I. And looking for emotional and semi-logical support for our position. No one is completely free of this that I know of. I certainly am not. I have to watch myself continually. If I find myself when a person is preaching something I believe, and I'm saying, Whoa, that's wrong! And really getting emotionally charged, especially if it's a point I have not carefully thought through scripturally, then I begin to say, Turn on your cool-off button, buddy. Don't let your mind get charged up like this. Because you're not going to be able to reason clearly afterwards. See? If I give myself looking for emotional and semi-logical support for our position. Now, brother went to a meeting a few weeks ago and came back and told me a thing to prove the point. I said, how does that prove the point? Well, he said this meant this and this meant... I said, he said he meant it? That this means this? How could you arrive at the conclusion that this means this? He looks at it and says, I guess that's an interpretation. It really doesn't necessarily... Well, I said, of course not, see? But you were set to believe it. So when you heard this highly charged thing, Wow, there it is! What I've been looking for, the proof of the pudding is right there! See? When it wasn't there at all. See? How could you believe that? I don't know. Well, of course, the reason they could believe it is he went looking for emotional and semi-logical support. Here was a reason handed out which did not stand up to close looking. A reason handed out, so he accepts the reason, and it was set in an emotional atmosphere. And the person emotionally, yeah! See? All right, the second thing is repetition. The very dangerous fixer for false opinions. The more I say something, the more I must say it. The more I say something, the more I believe it's right. The more I say something, the more I can hear no argument to the contrary. I will neither hear the scripture. Now, here's the, the point that I'm making. I first saw this years ago when I went to my pastor as a young Christian, and I said, please explain to me about predestination. And I had some scriptures in Romans that I was looking at. And he said, keep away from it. We don't believe in it. And I said, what is it we don't believe in? I said, scripture. Keep away from it. It's dangerous. Do not fool with that doctrine. And for years, see, now here's the emotional charge. I wasn't looking for anything, but I'm a young babe like this. Oh, yes, Pastor. What do you say? See? All right. Years I'd get up. We do not believe in predestination, that hellish doctrine of the devil, which has damned more souls than all of the false cults and this. See, you know, people, oh, predestination, keep away, predestination. And here's a whole, now, the more you repeat it, the more you believe it, the more. Now, when God tore my whole structure apart, I say, I was out there by myself, separated from my wife, and I came and said, Lord, let me read this book like a new book. And one thing I came across is predestination is in the Bible. Isn't it there? Well, then I better look at what it is. Now, see, men may interpret predestination wrong. They may come up with wrong concepts about it, but to say, keep away from it, we don't believe in it, that's a wholly emotional has nothing to do with reality or truth. If it's in the Bible and God takes much time to talk about the election of grace and election of nations and predestination and foreknowledge, we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world and and to say it keep away from it, we don't believe it. See, that's this kind of mentality. But the more you repeat we don't believe it, the more you feel totally justified we don't believe it, the more you are certain that you're right we don't believe it, and that we don't believe it for godly reasons. In fact, it has nothing to do with truth at all. Okay. There are three things here to understand. One is that it's not just having fixed opinions. It's also because of sin having a fear of man, and therefore the pressure of the situation also makes you want to come up with a solution which will resolve a painful problem for you 
without increasing the pain. See, sometimes the only way to get rid of the pain is to increase the pain. In other words, if I have a completely rotted gall bladder, we're using a natural example, I'm not talking about healing, maybe the only way to get rid of it is to have more pain for a time. So I submit myself to an operation, I'm cut open, I'm immobilized, it's removed, I'm sewed up, I'm scarred, but that finally gets rid of the pain, really. But I would much rather have somebody simply hypnotize me and tell me there is no pain and then go on. Of course, that might kill me, but I would rather do that. It's a warfare. See, I am never free. I am never free of the pressure to conform to pressure. I'm never free from the pressure to conform to pressure. I am never free from the danger of fixed opinions that I believe, because I don't even know what all my fixed opinions are. I am never free from the sin of opinionation. See, I'm never free from it. Now, what I mean is I can be free from sinning in these areas, but I'm never free from the weaknesses and the things built in the patterns of my system. My parents have put in me opinions about life. Satan has very carefully programmed me over many years before I came to Jesus and probably a little bit afterward because I didn't know how to defend myself or really understand the Word of God. And I have all kinds of fixed things laying around in me and I never know when they'll pop up. So if somebody says something, I believe this. Say, wait a minute. Why do you believe that? Well, because everybody knows that that's the way it is. See, and almost you can be sure when everybody says everybody knows, you better get to looking in the Bible quick because something really thinks there. You have no reasons to deduce for that, see. All right, now, that's the warfare. So you must constantly be conscious of that and war against that kind of mentality. See, it's always there. Now, the second thing to remember, though, is Normally, your people, when they read the Word of God, they are not interested in anything like we're talking about at all. And for the most part, many of you as elders are not really all that interested in what I'm talking about either. Now, I don't mean that in a, like you say, oh man, let's have something else. No, you're very interested in hearing it. But when you go back, because that's not your particular field, you are not going to apply that kind of study to the Word of God, and you don't have that kind of overall mind to look at the whole of something because you're much interested in dealing with people individually and certain problems and you're working with individual cases rather than trying to come up with apostolic doctrine. Now you can do that, give yourself to it, but you may find it just isn't there. That gift isn't there. But I want you to be protected against, get caught away with logicalized, emotionalized arguments that sweep you away and you wonder why it's because you got a fixed opinion about it or it resolves a painful problem for you so you latch onto that and say ah this is the thing we now believe see where it has nothing to do with truth or reality haven't carefully examined this okay now no one I told you before no one is to be bound you catch me coming up with something like this Jim Jones thing now this is a typical example where he began to turn, I don't know if you followed the case, but he began to turn and say, see, he used Christianity, he never was a Christian, never was a follower of Jesus Christ, never was. And he testified that himself. So I'm not saying something he didn't say. The whole thing was a scam from the beginning in his mind. He saw this as a way to get in and do something. He used the Bible, preached Jesus, but after a time he said, I've got to find a way to get the people away from this thing and looking at me. Now, see, the Bible makes one point very, very clear, doesn't it? And that's what I've always taught you, that God is the center of everything. And if I ever start drawing you away from him to me, that's time you draw away from me to him. See, it's just that clear. But in these other matters, there is an overriding essentiality that must be in our work. Years ago, in Alaska is where I first wrote the letter... Where's Scott Snedeker? I saw you. I wrote a letter. Do you remember to you? Yeah. All right. And I think you wrote that to the people because at that time they were saying, well, Abbott Loop says this and Gospel Outreach says this. What do we believe? Okay, now this is a very natural thing among even apostolic men. They do not understand things exactly the same. And at any one point, you can take what they say out of context for instance, like the apostles, the whole church. Now, I want to show you an argument. If you want to do something contrary to the truth, the whole argument, how it can be used. The early church meeting together with Paul and Barnabas came up 
to the Gentiles with a statement. They believed that they were now in the kingdom. They believed that God had opened the door to the Gentiles and granted them life. And so now they were writing a letter correcting an error that some people went up and said they should be under the law and they should be circumcised and keep the law and so forth and so on. They said, this is not true. We did not send these men. It's not from us, not of God. Pay no attention to these people. They said, except we would remind you, Gentiles, you're not under the law, but these four things we tell you. That you keep yourselves from fornication, from idolatry, from things strangled, and from blood. And if you do these things, ye do well, fare you well. Question. Here is the only time that I know of that the whole council of apostles, at least the important ones, the twelve, or the eleven in Jerusalem, Matthias, Paul, Barnabas, mighty men of the church, met together, together with the elders in Jerusalem and the whole church in Jerusalem, considered the matter carefully, the only council that I know of, and came up with a conclusion that bound the church. Still binds us today. Question. Now here's the point I want to make. One. It is clear then that there are only four things that any Gentile has to be careful of. One, he does not get into idolatry. Two, that he does not get into immorality. Or if you want to take King James, just fornication is all you have to worry about. Three, strangle things. Four, blood. Question. What right did Paul have later to say and add all those other restrictions onto this? Since it was never, ever, an establishment of the whole counsel of God. All kinds of things. Whole New Testament. Don't do this. Don't. Let him that stole steal no more. This doesn't say anything about can't steal. This gives Gentiles complete liberty to steal, doesn't it? Okay. <laughs> That's the point I'm making. See now how you can reason? Of course, I'm saying, listen, this is the only time the whole... And that's exactly what some people said. Said, Paul, who are you? We're followers of Cephas now. Or we now really believe in uh, Apollos. That's, that's the one way we're going. So, and he asked him a question. He said, what? I want to give this point to you. He said, did the word of God come out from you? Or only to you? You folks, did you arrive at the conclusions that you've arrived at about life out of your own minds? Or were you taught these things by an apostle? Mm -hmm. You learned apostolic doctrine. Mm -hmm. Your whole mentalities. See, but later on I say, oh, we're not into that anymore. Now, that's what happened three years ago. Mm -hmm. Oh, we're not into these things anymore. Now we're into this thing over here. That's when I had to climb back on the war horse and say, no. Now, if you want to present something, I can learn. And that'll become part of apostolic doctrine, too. Or you show me something I've missed, I can miss things. See, I don't know the whole Bible. I don't think Paul knew the whole Bible. Some say, oh, Paul knew everything in that book. I don't think he did at all know everything in that book. And I don't think all the apostles together knew everything in the book. See, I know James didn't know everything in the book, because he was doing it from one side. Peter didn't know everything in the book, because he was hopping back and forth between these two situations. No, they didn't know everything in the whole book. And then Paul writes some things. Peter says, wow, these are hard to be understood. I uh, say, they didn't understand everything in this book. But they still made a point. Did the word of God come out from you? Or did it only come to you? That's a pretty strong argument. See, question, the reason why they're there, they say, who are you, Paul? They, All right, now take it back to the Old Testament, to Moses, and you got the Moses situation. Moses, you take too much on you. All God's people are holy. Moses had no argument with that. But Moses did have an argument with, therefore we also can offer sacrifices on that altar just as good as you can. He said, God. God said, separate them over this place over here. I will show you. See. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, now next question. All right, now, there's a place here. See, a place to understand that there is an impartation because of gifts, not because of, like, who do you think you are, wise guys? You have nothing to do with that at all. Right now, understanding, however, that we are in this position. Now, here's the place I want to bring to you. All right, now, 
I want to say that Paul could go on from this position because he was an apostle. And as long as he developed truth based on written revelation, that became truth to the church. You follow that now? Truth based on written revelation. So he said, I say only what the fathers say. So he's saying in the whole New Testament, he said nothing except what was already written. So remember, truth based on written revelation. He said he received his gospel directly from the Lord. But notice when he said he spoke, however, he said, I said nothing but what the fathers have said. Now, why did he say, got it direct from the Lord, but I said only what the fathers, why did he say that? Why can he say, I've been up in the presence of God, I got it direct from Jesus, and here's what Jesus said to me, and I'm telling you, okay, if I can speak to you a vision that I've had, and that vision takes on the force of revelation without it being able to be checked out in Scripture, you have no safety. You can be swept away with vision after, and many of the works that exist in this world today are based on the vision of men who call themselves apostles, and they said, this is the milk teaching. But now in the last days we are coming into the meat of the Lord and he's revealing new through apostles this great new revelation. You either test it against written revelation or pay no attention to it at all. See? Now I'm telling you if I ever get up some morning and get on the phone to you elders and tell you, man, I've had this glorious revelation. It's not in scripture. You won't find it, but it's a great new thing we're moving on to. Please drop the phone back on the hook and go back to business. And then pray for me. Hallelujah. Alright. Now how many of you would do that if I did that? But now I want to tell you something. I'm not going to do that by the grace of God. And I don't see any place where apostles really went away from the truth and ever did that. And I believe that's almost what God does in the church. When he established them in the church, a real apostle does not. False apostles, yes, but not true apostles. It does not happen. But apostles, you have a tendency that you might not do that. You might not. Not unless you get it deep in your heart now. Is it in the book? Every man can read this book and be safe. Every woman can read this book and be safe. Either it's in this book, and if it isn't in here, pay no attention to it, whatever. Say, okay, as long as you have that. Now, you can experiment with a lot of other things, but the force of truth. See, when I say, this is truth, pay no attention to it, whatever, unless it's written revelation. Okay, now I'm going to have to stop here and do some reasoning with you. Watch out especially the emotionally charged atmosphere that reveals a revelation that says, Accept this now! You must believe God if there's unbelief here! You say, yeah, I've got some unbelief till I can get home and check this book here. See? That's right. I'm a very unbelieving man. When I hear something, I say, fine, I'll look at this. See? I say, when a man presents something to me, I'll say, I'll look at this. But your safety, and the safety which maintains our unity, and I'm going to bring this out, what is it that holds our covenant intact? The thing that maintains our unity is the ability to submit to apostles' doctrine. Now let me explain what happens if you do not. Two things about this idea of, I've got something from God, and I want to see this established in the church, and I want to see it now, because I know I've heard it of God, and do it! All right, now, here's what's wrong with that. If any one of you had a right to insist on that, then what is the logical next statement that would also be true? Anybody has the right. Well, yes, and the other one has the right to insist on the immediate adaption of his idea. See? Now, if that's also true of elders, see, if it isn't restricted somewhere, now we're saying, oh well, it just isn't an apostle's thing, that's also a prophet's thing, that's also a teacher's thing, that's also a pastor's thing, that's also an evangelist's thing, that's also the elder's thing, that's also for the deacons, then who also is it true for? Well, sure, see, it's true for everyone. So each person, and that's exactly what you've got in most churches, Pastor, I demand that in this church you do this thing or I'm going to see that you're voted out of here or you will... See, in other words, each person demanding that they get 
No, that's a totally unscriptural approach. It must be to those whom that mantle or that weight is given. All right, now without that, then it is just a very short time until the body again breaks up into a new fragment. Apostles do not agree because they do not have clear understanding of everything. They simply do not. But if you are part of a group, then be part of that group believing that if God has more to teach your apostle or apostles, and other apostles are rising, take a few years maybe, before they're fully sent forth and done, may not either. But apostle or apostles, give them time if something needs to be changed in them, Give them time to change. Now let me explain what I'm saying. You go around and I've given you freedom to take another teacher. The reason I do that, I don't like to do that. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like to do that. And I wouldn't do it if the scripture gave me a way out of it. I say, don't listen to a Bob Mumford tape. Don't go to a Bill Gothard seminar. Don't go to a J.E. Adams counseling. Don't go over here and hear about inner healing. Don't go. See, why would I want to do that? Well, sure, it makes it real easy for me then, so you don't hear one voice. But it's not scriptural. It's perfectly scriptural for you to hear Apollos and Cephas and Barnabas. And But Paul makes out a point. You have many teachers. You don't have many apostles. So hear them, but if I have to say something contrary to that, say, no, now then don't make a point and say, well, I don't care what Jim says. Bill says this, Joe says this, Tom says this, Ed says this, Mary says this, and therefore this is where I am over here. That will simply pull us and rend us and tear us and destroy us. See, it is not a correct thing. So don't get into any of these things. We are followers of an apostolic calling. Let's hold it. We have a message to bring. And the message is not to prove whether... Bill Gothard or Jay Adams or Agnes Stanford. Say, which of these are really... That's of no consequence. We have a message. Our message is... Purpose. Vision. Our message is all the other things which have changed and transformed your life and strengthened you. That's our message. Amen. And we can say, oh man, I'm, I'm off over here now, but I'm, I'm into this thing, and this is where I am, and boy, this is where it really is. Next thing, we've lost sight of this entirely, and we are propagators of these things here. Extremely, and then the whole thing just dissipates. Now, secondly, because another apostle believes differently than I believe, does not mean they're right. Or because... Ten apostles believe differently than I believe does not mean they're right. Now, I'll give you an example where ten apostles believe one way and one believe differently. Except the one was right, the ten were wrong. Because the ten had something from God, the one had something from God, the ten did not. Peter knew he could go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel to them. When he got back to Jerusalem, they said, You entered in with the uncircumcised, and you... They... And Peter said, let me tell you what happened to me. I know I'm right. Because, and then he began to, and they said, all right, I took this message of the coming crash to a group of apostles. They didn't believe it. Someone said, oh man, no, we're planning on giant new building programs. And man, we, this and that, and boy, we have, and then they heard it. Someone said, man, this is heavy because if this is right, we need to think different. Now, it weren't all that way. Some were already had the same revelation I had. It wasn't the point of that. I'm not trying to say I was the only one there and I gave them this glorious revelation. But there were quite a few who weren't there. And then they went and sought God and came back and said, Brother, what you are preaching is the word of God. You must minister this. The only thing we will caution you, don't put dates on it. But that's truth. See? Now, the point is because this one, this one. That, it's not a matter of let's take a vote of 15 apostles and see if we get 60-40 in favor. If you had 60-40, you still wouldn't know whether it's right. That's right. The only way you can know what's right is to follow the apostle that God has given you. I'm not off in some weird area. Kept your safety here. When things have come in to try to ravage or tear the body apart, I stood up when I had to and I've talked. 
When I don't have to talk, I'm very quiet. People say, why don't you come and give us more direction? I give as much direction as I think I should. See? But I think that's why God called me to be an apostle. I don't like to rule people. I don't like to run their lives. I don't like to give orders. I don't like to do that. See? But I've got a job to do. That's a calling. And that calling I have to maintain. And you as elders have to maintain with me. Even though I may be lacking at some point that you do have some insight in for a moment. Of course, you may find out you don't have the insight you think you have to. See, it may be in fact you're just pressured or you've got a fixed opinion. Later on you look at it and say, man, how could I even think that way? See, but I want to tell you that every one of these conclusions I've come to. See, i got a whole lot of conclusions that I'm coming to. But they're not ripe. They're not mature. They're not real. Therefore, I don't speak them. Not ready to talk about it because I'm not concluded. But most of these things, brothers and sisters, have been something over many, many years of much study and meditation and prayer. And I believe God showed them to me. I can adequately demonstrate what I demonstrate from the Word of God. I don't try to come up with supervisions of my own. This book adequately defends my point. Say, all right, let us then hold steady to apostolic doctrine. Let us learn it. Let us be glad for it. Let us be thankful for it. Let us walk in it. Say, now, go to other things, but don't come back with those things and say, we heard this and you prove. Say, if you come back to me and say, we heard this and he says it a little bit differently, could you explain something? Glad to explain it. But I don't want to be compared and I want to have to prove myself. I've proven myself to you. I don't, there's no way I can ever prove myself again in the future like what new thing will I do to, well tomorrow we'll get my head cut off twice to show you how it, you know this really I can't do that I've given you my life it's all I know how to do see and I've given you truth and I've walked before you in a good example and so is my wife so trust that revelation that's in me see we're not going to get off the track and go down some crazy lane someplace and I'll tell you something it's what Ellie said the other day it was here and here again I know I'm doing a little bit of foolish talk here, but I've got to do this because it's going to be important in the years to come, because I think what's going to happen with me, I'm going to be removed from you, not by death. I don't feel anything like that immediately, although already in the Constitution is a plan that if something should happen to me untoward, there is provision made for a conclave of elders to come together and then create a right thing. But I know what you mean. There should be no need for a power struggle or something like that. Hopefully, there would be a proper transition that everyone would see and recognize as a godly transition, and then we just go on from that point. But hopefully, I'm saying that that will never take place, that when I go, you go, and we just all make one grand exit together. This suit me fine. Hallelujah. Yeah. Okay. But I'm saying that it was the same thing that I sat down with Ron in that letter that I wrote to you as this. I said, that authority must be heard, as long as that authority is willing to change, and I'm willing to change. If I'm wrong in some area, see, then I can be corrected, or I can learn. See, that's why I've been very careful to say that what I have in many areas is working truth. It isn't all the truth in that area. Now, some things I have absolute truth, and there's no controversy, Jesus Christ is Lord. Controvert that with me? <laughs> A slave with the Word of God. So you just bam, 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 bam. There's no question of that. But certain other areas, it's working truth. It's approximate truth. It's good, it's safe, it's sound, but there's room for more to be added. There's room for greater revelation. There's room for more learning. There's room for, and I'm constantly growing in that, and I hope you are with me, that we're searching the Word together, and you're coming to me and saying, Jim, I found something in the Word, and would you look at it? Man, this sounds like, to... man, man, we're growing. I want to hear all those things that come from you. See, like, I have a, probably a weakness, probably is. See, there's some things I understand here, but not completely here. For instance, one of the things that I understand here, but not completely here, is that it's better to be single. How many of you know that's in Scripture? Now, let me ask you a question. Now, here you've got to be real careful how you answer this. How many of you, therefore, with your minds, would say, Amen, it's better to be single? Because yes. How many emotionally, though, especially if you've got a good marriage like I've got, man, it's terrific to be married. How many of you could picture yourself single, just walking around, come single? It's better to be single. It's really better, really better this way, see? Very difficult, right? All right. 
But the Bible says it's better to be single. That's right. We have some single brothers here. But I say it's better to be single. It says to get married is okay, but to stay single, that's better. But that's not real clear in my mind. Now, see, it's clear, but it's not clear. See? Because when I was single, it wasn't so good to be single. You know, I was looking at the girls, wondering when I'm going to get married. Lord, is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Finally, he showed me the one. I said, oh, boy, good. See? All right. See, now, Paul says better to be single. I don't know if he talked to Peter. Peter never said anything like that. See? And uh, so I don't know, you know, where that was. I don't know if Peter had that understanding or not. See? Okay.